Welcome to PHM After Dark, a podcast where we explore the exciting world of pediatric hospital medicine at night. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Mike. With school starting up again and chlorophyll production starting to slow down, we are quickly approaching the busy season in pediatric hospital medicine. So now is the perfect time to talk about, drumroll please, bronchiolitis. Before we get to that though, quick legal disclaimer. Nothing I talk about in this podcast is medical advice. It is purely for educational purposes and entertainment. Please do not use the information here to try to treat yourself, a loved one, a strongly disliked one, or anyone in between. If you have any medical questions or need help caring for a patient, please reach out to a qualified physician or your supervisor. Also, any patient scenarios I use here are purely made up and do not contain any protected patient information. You may notice that some of the content of this episode is eerily similar to the episode I recorded on bronchiolitis a year or two back. That's because it's based off essentially the same outline, with some updates to make it more relevant. So for today's learning objectives, at the end of this episode, learners will be able to do the following. Number one, define bronchiolitis and list the most common viruses that cause it. Number two, list some of the common signs and symptoms of bronchiolitis. And number three, explain the diagnosis and management of bronchiolitis in the inpatient setting. As a bonus, we're going to do a quick mention of some of the new preventive meds that are coming out. Since they are so new and I'm not a pharmacologist, it's really just going to be a super basic overview of them, but it's all exciting nonetheless. Like any good disease name that's not named after someone with an inflated ego, the definition is baked into the word itself. Anytime you hear, quote, itis, you are always thinking inflammation. So bronchiolitis literally means inflammation of the bronchioles. You get inflammation, increased mucus production, as well as softening of the epithelial cells in the bronchioles, and that leads to obstruction of those lower airways. Bronchiolitis specifically can only be diagnosed when someone is less than two years of age. Once they're over two, it doesn't mean that they're immune from the effects of those viruses, but we just call it a lower respiratory tract infection instead of bronchiolitis. It's kind of semantics, but also think of it like this. As a kid gets older, their airway gets bigger, and their immune system gets stronger from all the exposure over the years to these viruses. So disease processes change, and they're less likely to suffer from the negative effects of these viruses in the lower respiratory tract. Bronchiolitis is most commonly caused by respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, which is way easier to say. RSV is not the only virus that can cause bronchiolitis, however. Other viruses can do it as well, including things like rhinovirus, adenovirus, influenza, the OG coronavirus, really any of the viruses out there that affect the respiratory system. Normally, bronchiolitis and RSV specifically tend to be more winter diseases. In a pediatric hospital, our busy season is usually going to be November through March or April-ish, depending on the year. The last few years have been somewhat atypical in their seasonal variation, in no small part due to the COVID pandemic, but I suspect we're going to continue getting back to our seasonal variability pretty soon with busy winters and less busy summers. Once you've seen bronchiolitis a few times, you're going to find it a lot easier to recognize these patients quickly. Some of the initial symptoms are going to be rhinorrhea and congestion. Since infants are obligate nose breathers, congestion can actually cause some babies pretty significant problems. Some are going to have fevers, but others won't. As the illness progresses and that inflammation and obstruction worsens, patients can develop respiratory symptoms like cough, tachypnea, and increased work of breathing, which usually manifests itself in infants as retractions, grunting, and nasal flaring. Worsening obstruction can also lead to poor ventilation of the lungs and thus atelectasis, VQ mismatch, and hypoxia. 
Very young infants are also at risk of apnea, particularly if they were born premature. When you examine these patients, the first thing you're going to notice is their rhinorrhea and congestion. And then when you put your stethoscope on them to auscultate, you'll notice that they'll often have some ronchi mixed with transmitted upper airway sounds. Some patients might also have some wheezing as well. So how do you tell the difference between lung sounds and a congested nose? The best way to do it is to compare the noise when you listen at the lungs to what you hear when you place a stethoscope just in front of the nose. What you hear on exam is going to change over time though. So when your attending walks in and examines them, the breath sounds can be completely different and that's fine. Bronchiolitis makes liars out of all of us. And this happens because those secretions can shift so easily, particularly once the patient starts coughing. One other thing that can happen pretty quickly in patients with bronchiolitis is that they can become dehydrated. This happens for a few different reasons. For starters, they're going to have increased in sensible losses when they're tachypneic and febrile. There's also the fact that kids that aren't breathing well and don't feel well aren't going to be able to drink well either. On exam, take note of their heart rate because tachycardia can often be one of the first signs of dehydration in a pediatric patient. Other things to know are their blood pressure, capillary refill, pulses, mucous membranes, and their ability to make tears. Please note that bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis. You do not need to routinely order any labs or imaging unless it's indicated. For example, if the patient appears significantly dehydrated, then obtaining a set of electrolytes may be helpful. If you have consistent focality on exam, particularly if the patient has had a prolonged course with fevers, you might actually be worried about pneumonia, so it's not unreasonable to consider obtaining a chest x-ray in those cases. Every once in a while, you might meet an infant that clinically appears like bronchiolitis, but actually has some type of congenital cardiac disease and is developing heart failure. That's one of the reasons why it's really important to do a very thorough exam on every patient you meet and consider alternative diagnoses as appropriate. Don't anchor on a diagnosis that someone gave you. Yes, common things are common, but rare stuff happens too, so it's important not to have that premature closure and assume a diagnosis without considering the alternatives. Now, before the COVID-19 pandemic, we would very rarely ever obtain viral testing on patients because, well, with the exception of influenza, it's pretty rare for the results of that testing to actually change our management at all. But ever since COVID, there's been an ebb and flow as to how much and what kind of viral testing we're sending. So make sure that you know whatever guidelines your institution is following and that you follow them as well. I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble. But keep in mind that some of these tests can be very expensive, either for families or the system, which ultimately is going to get passed on to the families one way or the other. Now let's talk management. Management in bronchiolitis is purely supportive. The two main ways kids get in trouble is their hydration status and their breathing. We'll talk about hydration status first. Patients can become dehydrated for the reasons we already talked about. As long as their respiratory status doesn't preclude it, oral rehydration is going to be the gold standard for treatment of dehydration in pediatric patients. If for any reason oral rehydration is not possible, then you consider other management options, including an NG tube or IV fluids. But once the patient is getting better, they'll usually start drinking again. It's a waiting game, though. You can't really reason with infants and toddlers, so you just have to wait until they feel like taking PO. From a respiratory standpoint, it's important to understand what you're looking for when you're worried about respiratory distress. When I'm deciding how significant a patient's respiratory distress is, I think of the patient almost like a meter. 
the higher the signs are in the patient, the sicker that patient is. The early signs of respiratory distress are often going to be belly breathing and subcostal retractions. As it gets worse, you'll start to have some intercostal retractions, and then as it continues to get worse, you'll see supraclavicular retractions. Once it gets to this point, I'm usually getting a lot more worried about the patient. Beyond that point, you can then develop grunting, nasal flaring, head bobbing. One thing to know is that younger infants, well, they don't really have necks or good head control, so sometimes you can be fooled into thinking that they have head bobbing, when really it's just their head is moving because they're breathing in and out and their chest is moving up and down as well. You can usually tease this out by looking to see if there are any other retractions or if there's any nasal flaring. That can be a hard thing to do sometimes though, but it does get easier with time and experience. So let's say we're in a patient's room. Uh, we'll take care of Remy today, who is obviously named after the rat in one of Pixar's finest works. The nurses call you into the room because Remy is having some increased work of breathing. On exam, you note the typical rhinorrhea, congestion, and ronchi. He has notable subcostal retractions, intercostal retractions, and supraclavicular retractions. The first thing you should do is check for hypoxia with the pulse ox. Next, try to suction the nose. Ask the nurse to put a few drops of nasal saline in and then use the wall suction to get some of that junk out of the patient's nose. Deep suction can be a bit of a controversial subject. I worry about it because of the risk of airway trauma and causing laryngospasm, which obviously will make things worse. And so nasal suctioning is a much safer intervention overall. People have been trying for a long time to figure out what else can you give kids for bronchiolitis. Some patients will get better with albuterol, but this is absolutely the minority, and some of those kids are actually just going to go on to ultimately be diagnosed with asthma in the future. And so for purely bronchiolitis, albuterol should not be routinely used. Treatment with racemic epinephrine also doesn't really have a lot of great evidence backing it up, but we still try it at times. Now, if you think you actually have the wrong diagnosis and that the kid actually has asthma or actually has croup, then yeah, these medications might actually help, and you should be using them. But if it's just purely bronchiolitis, then we worry that we're just giving medicines just to make ourselves feel better without making the kid feel better. Nebulized hypertonic saline is another interesting discussion. The studies are mixed at best, and right now the AAP does not routinely recommend it. It may help some kids if you use it every 8 hours for 24 hours to decrease the overall length of stay in the hospital, but this is really variable. Now one thing that we are pretty adamant about is that steroids should not be routinely used in bronchiolitis. Again, if you think your diagnosis is actually wrong and you're dealing with asthma or croup, then yeah, you should be giving steroids, but just for bronchiolitis, don't routinely give steroids. So what can you do to help Remy? Well, you suction, and then sometimes you just need to give it time. Bronchiolitis is a roller coaster. It's one of those rickety old ones in the amusement park that should have been shut down years ago. Um, you'll have good times and you'll have bad times, and those times can change quickly. Once you're past the peak of illness, usually between three to five days after symptom onset, the good times will last for longer and the bad times won't be as bad. But sometimes those bad periods can be really bad, and sometimes at that point, you have to think about whether this kid needs additional respiratory support and or escalation to a higher level of care like the PICU. There's one thing I would like to mention, though, when we're talking about inpatient management of bronchiolitis, and that's the use of pulse oximetry. Pulse ox should generally not be used continuously for patients with bronchiolitis who are not on oxygen. If they are on oxygen or are ill-appearing, then yeah, that's a different discussion. It's also not unreasonable for the youngest of patients that get admitted with bronchiolitis to be on continuous pulse ox, really if you're worried about apnea. 
but let's say Remy is nine months old and he's got a typical course of bronchiolitis, he's not having any respiratory distress, we should just be doing pulse ox spot checks. Now, this might all sound familiar to you, since I did an episode earlier this year talking with some of the folks from the Eliminating Monitor Overuse Project, or the EMO study, that's looking at how to best change our culture and de-implement the routine use of continuous pulse ox in healthy kids with bronchiolitis. Okay, now that's the main stuff I wanted to talk about for bronchiolitis. Now, here's a little bit of a bonus. This has been a really interesting year with respect to bronchiolitis and pharmacology. In July, the FDA approved a new medication, Nirsevimab, trade named Bayfortis, that's a monoclonal antibody active against RSV. AAP just put out a recommendation about Nirsevimab, which you can read on their website, but it remains to be seen how much we're going to be able to get distributed to the public during this busy season. The initial clinical trials do suggest so that it's going to decrease the rates of medically attended lower respiratory tract disease in infants. The other big approval for this year is RSV Pref, or trade name Abrivzo. I think that's what they're called. All these names are really confusing, and I apologize that I'm butchering them all. This is a vaccine made from recombinant RSV proteins and is approved for pregnant women 32 to 36 weeks gestation to reduce the risk of medically attended lower respiratory tract disease. We don't know how the introduction of these preventive medicines is going to ultimately affect hospitalization rates. There's also a lot of discussion going on about the cost effectiveness of these medications as well as the equitable distribution, but these are all topics way beyond the scope of this podcast, so I'm going to leave it at that. So there you have it. Those are the highlights of bronchiolitis that you need to know to start with. There are some additional nuances that you'll pick up along the way, particularly how to tell who's sick and who's not sick. I do highly recommend reading the 2019 Peds and Review article on bronchiolitis. That will give a nice broad overview that will give you the foundation for when you meet these patients in person and counsel families. And that's it for today. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of PHM After Dark. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Mike. As always, hoping you find joy wherever you find yourself, even after dark. Take care.